Hi there, and welcome to the Siecla. My name is Sam Hume, the host of a podcast on the history of the British Empire, Pax Britannica. The British peace supposedly began after the Battle of Waterloo and lasted for a century. Of course, this peace was built on military and financial domination and wasn't really the least bit peaceful. In many ways, the phrases Pax Britannica and the Siecla are two sides of the same coin, the same period, but vastly different experiences. Which, at this stage, is largely irrelevant, as unlike David, my title is quite misleading. The narrative of Pax Britannica is currently two centuries before the actual Pax Britannica, with the reign of James VI and I. By the time I reach Waterloo, I will have covered how a rainy archipelago could enforce a supposed global peace. If you want to listen to that story, then Pax Britannica is available on all good podcasting apps. And now, on with your regularly scheduled podcast. This is the Siecla. Episode 13. Bourbons Neat. My thanks to Sam from the Pax Britannica podcast for providing the promo for his show that you just heard. Pax Britannica is one of my favorite history podcasts, and I highly recommend you check it out. Thanks also to you for your patience, as I failed to release any new episodes during the entire month of August. I was caught up in various work involving buying my first house and moving in. There are still so many boxes yet to unpack. But I want to apologize for letting this podcast fall by the wayside. This week on the Siecla, we're going to take a step back to bring some important people out of the wings and into the limelight. I'm speaking about France's royal family, the Bourbons, who I've mentioned in passing here and there, but never talked about in detail other than King Louis XVIII. In part, that's because I've been trying not to make this show a slog of names and dates, and in part, it's because many of these royals have in fact only played bit roles in the event so far. But others were right in the thick of things, and even the ones who weren't were seen as extremely important by the people of their time. Think of the celebrity status of Britain's royal family today, and then add genuine political influence to boot. Also, spoiler alert, one of the royals I discuss in this week's episode is going to die in episode 14. We've already talked quite a bit about Louis XVIII, including in episode 12, my interview with Louis's biographer, Philip Mansell. So we're not going to spend much more time with the king today. Instead, it's time to finally meet his family. Fair warning here. I'm about to drop a lot of names on you, and most of them are Louis's. Call it an occupational hazard of French history. Louis XVIII was a member of the House of Bourbon, or Bourbon, one of the most illustrious noble houses of Europe. The house dates back to the Middle Ages, when a younger son of France's famous King Louis IX, a devout crusader who was later canonized as Saint Louis, the namesake of the American city, married the heiress to the Bourbonnais region of central France. The Bourbons thus trundled along as prominent French nobles for many centuries, until 1589, when King Henry III of France died childless. By the complicated rules of royal genealogy, the line of succession went all the way back up to St. Louis, then down through his descendants, until it arrived at the 35-year-old Henri de Bourbon, or Henry of Bourbon, 
then the king of a tiny mountainous country on the border between France and Spain. There was just one minor little issue. Henri de Bourbon was a Protestant, and a militant Protestant at that, in a predominantly Catholic country that had been torn apart by the so-called wars of religion for decades. But Henry was a pragmatic fellow, and allegedly quipped, Paris is well worth a mass. He converted to Catholicism and took the French throne as King Henry IV, the first Bourbon king of France. Henry ruled for more than two decades, pursuing a policy of religious toleration that tried to end the country's sectarian bloodshed. This massively annoyed critics on both sides, who tried a dozen times to assassinate him. The thirteenth time, however, was the charm, and Henry was stabbed to death by a radical Catholic in 1610. We're going to skip over the eventful reign of his son, Louis XIII, to get to the next person of immediate importance for our story, Henry's grandson, the titanically important Louis XIV, the Sun King, whose epic 72-year reign saw France and the French monarchy transformed. You can learn more about Louis XIV in Philip Mansell's new biography, King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV, a link for which is at thesiecle.com slash episode 13. But for our purposes, I'm just going to focus on his family. Louis XIV had a younger brother, Philippe, to whom he gave the title of Duke d'Orléans, or Duke of Orleans. Despite being openly homosexual, Philippe produced children with not one but two royal brides, Henrietta, the daughter of King Charles I of England, and Elizabeth Charlotte, the heir to the German territories of the Palatinate and great-granddaughter of King James I of England. If you want to learn about James, Charles, and their offspring, then you can do no better than to check out the Pax Britannica podcast. But Philippe's sons and grandsons, despite their royal blood, would not rule France, though one of them would get the next best thing as France's regent for eight years. That's because, among many bastards and children who died in infancy, Louis XIV had a legitimate son, who in turn had several children of his own. Two of the Sun King's grandsons would become kings, one as King Louis XV of France, and another as King Philip V of Spain. This latter bit sparked a brutal continent-wide war, and the upshot after all the killing was Philip was allowed to be King of Spain, but he had to renounce his claim on the Kingdom of France for himself and all his descendants. Thus, Philip's heirs branch off as the Spanish Bourbons. A generation later, the Spanish Bourbons will split again, with the King of Spain agreeing to give his Italian possessions away to one of his sons, the birth of yet another branch of the House of Bourbon, the so-called Neapolitan Bourbons, who ruled the Kingdom of the Two Sicilies in southern Italy. And if you're wondering why exactly there are two Sicilies, That's a very interesting question, based on more than 500 years of convoluted history, exactly none of which I'm going to get into in this podcast. Instead, we'll come up to the eve of the Siecla's setting. While two of Louis XIV's grandsons became kings, Louis XV did him one better with three royal grandsons. The first was Louis Auguste, who would rule France as Louis XVI, from 1774 until his infamous date with the guillotine in 1792. The second was Louis Stanislas Xavier, who we know better as Louis XVIII, 
who claimed the French throne from the death of his nephew in 1795, and actually ruled starting in 1814. And the third was Charles Philippe, who at this time in our story is the heir presumptive to the French throne, and is known by his title, the Comte d'Artois, or simply as Artois. I should clear something up that puzzled me when I first started doing research. When prominent French nobles are referred to as the Comte d'Artois or the Duc d'Orléans, that doesn't mean they're exercising any sort of feudal control over the regions of Artois or Orléans. That's a medieval conception of lordship that just doesn't apply in post-revolutionary France. Some families might have ties to the regions in their titles, and might still own considerable land there, but that's by no means always the case. And it's especially not the case when we're looking at members of the royal family, who are usually given courtesy titles as honors. As a comparison, think of the British royal family. The king or queen's heir is traditionally made the Prince of Wales, but that doesn't mean he has any sort of political control over Wales. <clears throat> the three royal brothers grew up together in Versailles, surrounded by wealth and opulence of a scale and nature almost inconceivable to modern minds. Mansell describes Ancien Régime Versailles as at the same time a country house, an employment exchange, a riding school, the best in Europe, a bazaar, a casino, a government compound, and a military headquarters, all on an enormous scale. The palace was centered not on a throne room, as was traditional in many European courts, but on the king's bedchamber, where there were elaborate ceremonies associated with the king's rising each morning and going to bed each night. Nobles there wore fanciful, elaborate costumes, though by the 1780s, these archetypical Ancien Régime court fashions were already somewhat passé in a Europe that had fallen in love with Prussian-style military uniforms. All three royal children, dubbed Fils de France, or Son of France, were given a first-rate education for the day by a series of tutors. One anecdote from this childhood education perfectly captures the personalities of the three Bourbon children, all the way through to their future reigns. In their studies, the future Louis XVI was best at science and mathematics. The future Louis XVIII was best at classics and literature. And, as for Artois, he was almost always last. Artois may have been the worst at his studies, but he had other things going for him. Artois was handsome and outgoing, something of a playboy who frequently gets the label debauched attached to his younger days. As one historian put it, the Count's intemperate drinking, addiction to gambling, and mad pursuit of women shocked a Paris that had long been accustomed to such excesses. Artois ran up massive debts of more than 21 million livres, including 2 million livres on a single chateau that Artois had built in just 63 days to win a bet with Queen Marie Antoinette, with whom he was quite close. Artois was distinguished only by degree here. The future Louis XVIII also ran up millions of livres in debts during this period. Most embarrassingly for his brothers, Artois was quite fertile, fathering two sons, as well as a daughter who died young, with his wife, an Italian princess all born before the king and Marie Antoinette had any heirs of their own. The middle brother, Louis XVIII, 
would never have children, making Artois and his line the future of the dynasty by the time of the Restoration. Even as a young playboy, Artois' political instincts were quite conservative. In the run-up to the French Revolution, he opposed any concessions at all to the delegates of the Third Estate, the common people who were demanding a larger role in France's future than the medieval laws of the Estates General gave them, at a time when his brother, the future Louis XVIII, was backing moderate concessions. Artois fled France for exile two days after the fall of the Bastille, among the first of what would eventually be a flood of aristocratic émigrés. Over the course of his long exile, much of which was spent in England, Artois underwent a significant change. The dissolute playboy of Versailles found religion, allegedly swearing a vow of chastity in 1804 after the death of his favorite mistress. With all the zeal of a convert, Artois would now combine his existing dedication to restoring the old order with an equal commitment to France's spiritual and moral rejuvenation. The other important thing that happened to the Bourbon family during the prince's exile was the family got smaller. King Louis XVI was executed in Paris, along with his wife Marie Antoinette. Royalists then recognized Louis's young son as King Louis XVII, but the seven-year-old boy was currently in the hands of the revolutionaries. He was assigned to the custody of a cobbler with the mission of turning the boy into a Republican citizen, and died a few years later at age 10, under still murky circumstances. At this point, Louis Stanislas Xavier, who fled the country himself in 1791, declared himself King Louis XVIII, and the Comte d'Artois became the heir presumptive to the throne. As the king's oldest surviving brother, in the tradition of the French court, Artois was often referred to simply by the title Monsieur. After the Restoration, Artois lived in Paris, leading a social and political faction of conservative ultra-royalists from his residence at the Pavillon de Marsan, a wing of the Tuileries Palace. His household of courtiers, servants, and hangers-on was more than 250 people, paid for by 8 million francs per year in taxpayer subsidies. The poet Lamartine wrote that Artois was almost a king by the pomp of his household. In 1814, Artois was 56, and unlike his massively obese brother, he was a svelte, white-haired cavalier with charming manners, an affable, generous, benevolent gentilhomme, or gentleman. He was noted for being courteous even to his political enemies, and unfailingly polite. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past.
Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. Since the king was childless, that meant the line of bourbon succession went through Artois' two sons. The eldest, aged 39 in 1814, was Louis Antoine, dubbed the Duc d'Angoulême. History has not been kind to Angoulême, who gets described with words like sickly, impotent, and a blubbering non-entity. This may be somewhat unfair, and definitely undersells Angoulême's importance at the time, but is not necessarily wrong. Mansell describes him as a much more forceful and impressive figure to the French court than he appears to posterity. Notably, Angoulême had political opinions closer to his uncle the king than to his conservative father, was committed to the 1814 charter, and had a reputation for disliking ultra-royalists and émigrés. But much more so than any particular political opinions, what Angoulême was known for was his fickleness. He was apt to change his mind rather quickly, depending on who was influencing him at any given moment. Most importantly for the dynasty, Angoulême was also childless, and by 1814 it seemed clear he always would be. He had been married since 1799 and had no children, either in or out of wedlock. But despite its barrenness, Angoulême's marriage is important to our narrative because his wife was a Bourbon herself, his first cousin, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte, the 35-year-old daughter of Angoulême's uncle, Louis XVI. The Duchesse d'Angoulême had been a prisoner of the Revolution, like her parents and brother, but had managed to survive until the Reign of Terror ended, and she was exchanged for prisoners of the Allies. The experience seems to have left her understandably traumatized, and she would be noted as the most inflexible opponent in the royal family of liberalism and the legacy of the Revolution, not by nature inclined to favor moderate solutions. The Parisian bourgeois nicknamed her Madame Rancune, or Lady Resentment, for her undisguised disdain for everything that recalled the Revolution or the Empire. In addition to the murder of her entire immediate family, the other source of sadness of the Duchess's life was her childlessness, something both personally upsetting, as well as with major dynastic implications. Mansell calls it the tragedy of her life, which turned her into someone too often cold, sour, and gloomy, and so in the dreary round of exile, never going to parties, never going to the theater, this charming princess lost her looks, her youth, and all her joie de vivre. As an adult in the Restoration, the Duchesse d'Angoulême was noted for her severity in both politics and manner. She scorned the usual luxuries and social niceties expected of women of her era and station, in 1815, Louis attended a ball with his family, at which he even made the Duchesse d'Angoulême put on rouge. But if she was lacking in the era's expected feminine graces, she compensated in other areas. During Napoleon's escape from Elba, when the Bourbon regime ineffectually tried to stop the emperor's advance on Paris, most of the Bourbon royals fled ignominiously after half-hearted resistance, as I covered in episodes 1 and 2. But the Duchesse d'Angoulême was an exception. In the city of Bordeaux, she marched straight into the barracks of a company of Bonapartist soldiers and tried to rally them to the Bourbon cause. When the emperor heard of her brave but futile stand, he reportedly quipped, 
She is the only man in that family. Later, after Waterloo, when Marshal Ney was condemned to death by treason, something discussed in episode 5, Ney's wife and supporters pleaded with the Duchess to support clemency for the great Marshal on the theory that only she possessed both the influence and the unshakable royalist credentials to win Ney a pardon. She refused. With the Angoulême's childless, hope for the future of the main bourbon line rested with Artois' youngest son, Charles Ferdinand, known as the Duc de Berry. Berry was quite a different character from his older brother, but apparently no more impressive. He had a short, ugly temper, a personality characterized by one historian as solid vulgarity. Barry was noted for his lack of judgment, his boasting, and his pointless tantrums. Contemporaries record how he would lose his temper in royal councils, and that when he did have suggestions, they were usually idiotic. But Barry did have one thing going for him. Though still unmarried at 36, Barry was very clearly fertile, as demonstrated by a string of illegitimate children, as many as 22 in some accounts including two daughters by a British Protestant commoner named Amy Brown, who unproven rumors allege Barry secretly married during his exile in London. These royal bastards were a mixed blessing for the dynasty. On the one hand, proof that at least someone was capable of producing the next generation. But on the other hand, the kind of bad behavior that made Europe's crowned heads unwilling to give their daughters in marriage, despite the probability that the Union's offspring would rule France. Getting Barry married was one of Louis XVIII's top priorities in the first years of his reign. Of course, it's not fair to say that the fate of the French Bourbons rested entirely on the Duke de Berry. There was another branch of the family, who could inherit the throne, who were clearly fertile and clearly available. I speak of the House of Orléans, descended from Louis XIV's younger brother, who I briefly introduced earlier, the Duc d'Orléans. In 1814, that branch of the Bourbon family was represented by the 40-year-old Louis-Philippe, the current Duc d'Orléans, as well as Louis-Philippe's sister Adelaide, an extremely intelligent woman who was Louis-Philippe's intellectual and political partner. In one 1807 letter, the Duke wrote that, quote, If I wasn't your brother, I would marry you straight away. I'll introduce the fascinating Adelaide more fully in future episodes. We've discussed Louis-Philippe several times on the show, most notably in episode 2, when he was mentioned as a possible replacement for Louis XVIII as the French king. Louis-Philippe had impeccable royal bloodlines, but his politics were decidedly more liberal than any of his cousins from the elder branch of the Bourbons, which was either a selling point or a black mark, depending on your politics. Louis-Philippe was also tarred by the actions of his father, the prior Duc d'Orléans, who had been an enthusiastic supporter of the French Revolution, to the point that he eventually changed his name to Philippe Égalité, and, as a member of the National Convention, voted to execute his cousin Louis XVI. While these actions may have been an attempt to protect himself and his family in the highly charged political atmosphere of 1793 Paris, they left a lasting black mark on the Orléans family in the eyes of the Bourbons and other European nobles, even though Philippe Egalité had met his own end at the revolutionary guillotine 
not too long afterwards. Though by 1814, Louis-Philippe had submitted himself to his cousins and won a grudging reacceptance, he was never fully welcomed back into the fold. Louis XVIII in particular seemed to hold a grudge against the Duc d'Orléans, as one example makes clear. The customs of the French court meant nobles were treated differently based on their social rank, and fine gradations were preserved even at the very apex. Louis-Philippe held the rank of Serene Highness, just one step below the highest rank of Royal Highness. Louis-Philippe very much wanted to be elevated to Royal Highness, and Louis XVIII just as resolutely refused to give the promotion. Petty? To be sure, but the slight meant a constant string of low-grade humiliations for Louis-Philippe, especially because his wife, the daughter of the King of Naples from the Neapolitan Bourbons, was a royal highness. That meant that when the Orléans family was presented at court, both doors would be open for the Duchesse d'Orléans. The Duc d'Orléans was refused entry until one of the doors was shut in his face, because only royal highnesses were entitled to enter with both doors held open. Even beyond such snubs, the familial relationship between the elder branch of the Bourbons and their Orléans cousins was fraught, because everyone knew that the Duc d'Orléans wanted to be king. We are told of the extended Bourbon family gathering to celebrate Epiphany, when the traditional king cake would be baked with a bean hidden inside. Whichever person got the slice of cake with the bean would be crowned king of the celebration. The awkwardness of Louis-Philippe being crowned king at this farce, with his crowned cousin smirking across the table, was evident to all parties. After one such epiphany, when Orléans got the bean, the king wrote a snide letter mocking the duke's sullen face. Perhaps, the king said, he finds that this royalty does not amount to much. Still, despite only getting to be king of the bean, Orléans lived a pretty good life. His marriage to Maria Amalia of Naples and Sicily was happy and fecund. By Waterloo, the Orléans had two daughters and two sons already and the couple would ultimately have ten children, eight of whom would survive to adulthood. With Barry still unmarried and lacking legitimate children, Louis-Philippe was in line for the French throne, behind the aged Artois, Angoulême, and Barry. It seemed entirely possible that the House of Orléans would get to be kings for real one day. Whether that day will come is a question we'll have to get to later in our narrative. Until then, we're going to see the various Bourbon royals in action in the next full episode of the Siècle. You're also going to get a special bonus episode, discussing some of the sources I've used to write the podcast. A bonus episode brought to you by the support of my backers on Patreon, including Chaz S., Philip Pomerantz, Anthony Pitts, Robert Rosane, Richard Riley, Brett Matthew, Elliot Shank, Michael Jokum, M. Masella, Jacob Nelson, Stephen Caruso, Stephen Lubman, and Douglas Hayes, who have all backed the show since I last thanked new patrons. Producing the show takes a lot of time and a surprising amount of money, and even a dollar or five dollars per month can make a huge difference. You can find out more at patreon.com slash thesiecle, that's T-H-E-S-I-E-C-L-E, or at thesiecle.com slash support. You can also visit thesiecle.com slash episode 13, with 13 as a numeral, to see the online version of this episode, a full transcript with sources, 
footnotes, maps, and paintings of the various figures discussed here. It's worth checking out for the picture of the Duke de Berry alone, who looked exactly like you'd expect him to look. That's thesiecla.com slash episode 13. Also, be sure to check out Sam Hume's podcast, Pax Britannica. That bonus episode might or might not end up being the next episode to hit your feeds, depending on my schedule over the next two weeks. In either case, the next regular episode of the show will revisit that dramatic development I teased at the beginning of this episode. One of the bourbon royals I talked about today is about to die. Find out which one next time in the Siecla episode 14, Slipped on the Blood. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.